God was opening the door for us to approach Him. Not the other way around. It wasn't as if we got a thousand men on the left and a thousand men on the right and they all tugged as hard as they could and finally tore open the door so we can approach God. That's not what happened. God did it. God said, rip! The door to me is open. It was God that wanted us to approach Him. It was God that wanted us to be able to come to Him freely because of Christ. The scriptures record for us seven things that Jesus said when He was nailed to the cross. In this sermon series, The Dying Words of Jesus, Pastor Joplin Emerson examines all seven sayings. Listen in to see the heart of Christ unveiled like you've never seen before by the very words he spoke from the cross. Listen in to the final message of this series, part five, the final minutes on the cross. There are three statements that we're gonna examine this morning. I thirst, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. These statements occurred in sequence and really they occurred very close to each other. The, the final two, more than likely, there was no break between them. And that first statement, I thirst, what we know is when Jesus made that statement, he said, I thirst, that immediately some people took a sponge and filled it with some sour wine, lifted it up, and once he had uh, wetted his mouth with that sponge, he then says, it is finished. And he says it, the Bible says, notice two of our authors they tell us it was with a loud voice. It was loud enough. It was a declaration. It was this powerful cry. He says, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he bows his head and he dies. These statements happened right in sequence. And they're going to be the focus of our message this morning. I want us to look at each statement in the context of a declaration that Jesus is making about himself when he says these things. Number one, I thirst. Here we see Jesus declaring his full humanity. Christ was fully human. He thirsted like us. His body worked like our bodies. Remember that Jesus has been up all night. Remember that he has been beaten nearly to death, one of the, most, the worst scourgings ever recorded. Remember that the Bible teaches us that he was beaten to the point that he was unrecognizable. Remember that at this point, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for nearly six hours. When we read that about the sixth hour, darkness came upon the land, they counted time from 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would be noon for us. The first three statements that we studied in the sermon series happened during the first three hours, from 9 a.m. till noon. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When Jesus told his mother to behold her son, and he told John, his disciple, to behold his mother. When Jesus told the thief on the, on the cross that, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Those three statements happened in the first three hours that he was crucified to the cross. 
And then the Bible teaches us that at noon or the sixth hour, darkness swept the land and that it was dark for three hours. This is a supernatural darkness. It's like midnight darkness. It's a darkness that even the centurion and those that were there as soldiers and unbelievers recognized something supernatural was happening. During that three hours of darkness, there is a time of silence. Jesus really says nothing. It's three hours of darkness, three hours of just really intent trauma. And at the very end of it, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Shortly thereafter, he says, I thirst. They give him this hyssop, to, uh, this hyssop branch with a sponge on it, and he makes those two statements. I want you to think of all that he'd been through. Physically, his body was parched, just like ours would be. In the very last moments of his life, Jesus reminds us he was fully human. You want to know why this is really significant to us as believers? We often think of Jesus as a divine man who did things only Jesus could do. But that's just not true. I'm going to prove it to you just using the Bible that it's not true. There's nothing that Jesus did that other men have not. Nothing. You remember that Peter walked on water? Peter did. We all know about Jesus walking on water, but we often forget that Peter walked on water. And when we think about the event with Jesus and Peter, most of us think about Peter falling, right, and Jesus pulling him back up. And it's as if somehow our brains completely and totally shut off the fact that another human being besides Jesus has walked on water. Everything Jesus did while he was here on earth, he did as a man. There's nothing that Jesus did that other men cannot do. Nothing. Jesus raised people from the dead. Peter raised someone from the dead. Paul raised somebody from the dead. Jesus healed people that had been crippled from birth. Peter and John did that, Acts chapter 3. The man who had been crippled from birth. The point is this. Everything that Jesus did, he did as a man. He was fully human. He had the same limitations that you and I have. He experienced the same pains that we experience. He experienced hunger like we experience hunger. He experienced thirst like we experience thirst. He experienced sadness like we experience sadness. He experienced being tired like we experience being tired. He experienced famine like we experience famine. He experienced entirely and completely the human life because he was fully Man, when he chose to take on flesh, he chose to take on the full nature of man. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around because he was also God. The Bible says the Word was with God and the Word was God. 
and that in the beginning, all things were created by him. Nothing that was created was created without him. And then the word became flesh. And so here's what we know about Jesus. Jesus was there from the beginning. He's God, God eternal. But when he chose, chose to take on flesh, he chose to become fully human. He wasn't like half human. We often think of of Jesus, and and I, I really hesitate to use this analogy, but it's true in how we think of Jesus. We often think of him as we do like superheroes, like the Avengers. Like sort of human, sort of superpower, but he's not like us. No, the Bible teaches he was fully like us. Tempted just like we are in all parts, yet without sin. He was fully man. I'll tell you, for me as a Christian, it totally changed my perspective of who I was as a son of God when I recognized that Jesus did everything he did as a man. That whatever powers he did, whatever miracles he did, whatever things he did, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit, granting him power the same way it works today. This is why when we look at his disciples and we look at the book of Acts, they were able to do the same things Jesus did. Quiet in here this morning. There are people that hear this, and sometimes it's the first time they've ever heard something like it, and they have a very difficult time with it. There are those, friends of mine, who call such a belief heresy. But my question is, what does the Bible actually teach? You can scream all day long that you don't believe in something. My question is, what does the Bible teach us? And it teaches us that Jesus was, in fact, fully human. That he chose to become like us. And we see it from the beginning to the end. Whether he's tired in John chapter 4 and he has to sit at the well like most of us would after a long day of travel, or whether it's in the last moments of his life and he is parched and he cannot speak what he wants to speak without wetting his lips. He was fully man. Brothers and sisters, those of us that are Christians, that should change a little bit about what we believe about ourselves. That if Christ, our example, our leader, the one who said, take up your cross and follow me, the one who said, greater works than I'm doing, will you do? The one who said these things, if he has done it as our example, then we too can do it by faith. We are the sons and daughters of God. We see that Jesus declares his full humanity. Number two, we see that Jesus declares his complete victory. So John records Jesus making this statement, it is finished. It's an interesting word. There's really not another way to translate it in English, but it's not three words. It's one word. When Jesus made this loud cry with one word, it's translated the best we can into English, it is finished. Now, I want to tell you something that I believe that the Scriptures don't necessarily say. I'm just telling you it's what I believe. 
We do know that he says these last two statements with a loud voice, and it was loud enough that the authors made sure that they let it be known. There was something unique about this statement. It was really loud, really, declar- you know, really declarative. I believe personally that Jesus was so weak that his lips were so parched that he couldn't get these out with the strength that he wanted to and needed, he needed his mouth to be wetted one last time. And as soon as it was, he cried these statements out. It was like, as soon as it was there, as soon as his mouth was not dry and stuck together, he made these last statements quickly and then died. And he made them with a sense of force. And this word, it is finished. It is a word that I didn't say it at the first service. It's called tetelaste. It is a word that's very unfamiliar, unfamiliar to us, but it was used a lot in Jesus' day. It was used, for example, if a master gave a servant a handful of things the servant needed to get done in a day. And if the servant would come back at the end of the day and talk to his master, if there was anything that was not done or that needed buttoned up tomorrow, this is a phrase that simply could not be used. But if everything was done, every request complete, everything buttoned up, totally perfect, just as you asked it, master, this word would be said, it's finished, it's perfected, it's completed, there's nothing left to be done. Maybe of even more significance, this is a word that uh, merchants would use when making large transactions, transactions that would take time to do the accounting for. You'd have to count all the things that were being pulled off of the ship, and you count all 1,437 pieces, and then you tally up exactly what they should sell for, and then before you let the, the people you sold them to take them into their villages to sell them. You take time to count up all the money and make sure that everything is paid. And once everything equals and there is absolutely not a penny that is off, this is a word that would be used to say the cost is paid in full. The debt is fully, completely met. Now, this is the word that Jesus says right before he dies. Soon as he says this statement, he also says with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he bows and he dies. I always try to put myself like in this scenario as a bystander, sitting there, watching what's going on, and here's what I know with absolute certainty, as much as I've ever known anything, even though the Bible doesn't specify what I'm about to tell you, I just know this. Satan was there at the crucifixion. He was there. He was witnessing it. Doing everything he could to keep the hatred in the hearts of men, to keep the crowd turned against him, just waiting for the final breath so that finally Christ would die. And I can't help but imagine what was he thinking when Jesus said that statement right before he died. I cannot help but think there was the great moment of, wait a second, what did I, what did I miss here? Because it is a cry of victory. And when Jesus said it is finished, 
It was done. It was finished. What was finished? So much. The law was fulfilled. It was finished. Jesus was the only man to ever completely and fully satisfy the law. He kept it perfectly, which allowed him to become the perfect sacrifice. I believe that what else was finished was the completion of his sufferings, and he knew it. He knew it. This is the sufferings he had talked about. He had asked for the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, let this pass from me. There's a part of me that visualizes a runner that's ran long distance. I'm talking marathon-style running. That when you're coming up to the last lap, when you're coming up to the last mile, whatever it may be, there's a sense of you turn it on, you give it all that you have. But if you've ever watched the races, that's all I do. I don't run them, but I watch them. If you've ever watched the races, you'll notice that when they cross the finish line, those long-distance runners... A lot of times they collapse. It's like, how did they possibly give it all they had for the last lap and then cross the line and poof, collapse? It's because there's this sense of knowing if I can just push myself through, push through the torment, push through the pain, stay focused and get to the finish line. Once I get to the finish line, it's over. And it's like there's just this sense of relief that they can stop. I picture a little bit of that concerning his own sufferings when he said it's finished, it's done. Because we know according to the book of Revelation, he is now the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. He said, I am he who was dead and is alive and am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death, hell and the grave. He has risen and he knew this was the last of his sufferings. I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters, our King, our Savior, our risen Lord, when He comes back again, He's not coming back as a suffering lamb. He'll never be nailed to a cross again. It is finished. His sufferings are over, and He will come back as the triumphant King of kings. What else was finished? The atonement. The atonement for our sins. The atonement, that word, it's a big, big word. It's, it's more than just forgiveness. It's more than just fulfilling the debt. The, the word atonement, it's this big word. of. It really means making what was wrong right. That something had to atone for. Something had to be done that equaled the offense. It's the only way the offense could be dealt with is if it was atoned for. Couldn't be swept under the carpet. Couldn't be merely forgiven. Something had to be atoned for. Hebrews 10 tells us that the blood of goats and bulls could never atone for sins. That's why they had to do them over and over and over again. That's why once the year there had to be the National Day of Atonement. And what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 is that all of those sacrifices pointed to the true atonement. And that there was one who died once and for all as the atonement for our sins. The atonement, brothers and sisters, of all of our sins, past, present, and future, we find them 
at the cross. And when Jesus said it is finished, He meant it is finished. The cost of redemption, it's paid in full. The requirement of the law, it's finished. The Bible said that the temple veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. While Jesus is crying out, it is finished, the veil is being torn. That is a powerful thought. You know what that veil was? It was the place that kept people out of the holy of holies. It was the place where God's manifest power resided for a very significant chunk of history. And the Bible says that veil was torn from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. It was God that tore that thing apart. What was finished? Man was no longer distanced from God. Mankind can now go boldly, as the author of Hebrews also tells us, boldly into the throne of grace. I'm going to tell you why it matters that it's finished. It matters that it's finished for a lot of reasons, but one applicable reason to you as a Christian believer. It matters because when you find yourself faltering and you find yourself failing and you find yourself sinning, you need to know that your ability to approach God, it's finished. It is finished. It's done. It's, Jesus has totally and completely finished it. But how many of us, when we find ourselves in a moment of weakness, in a week or a chunk of time where we just haven't really been serving God like we should, we've been giving in to strongholds, we may be even guilty of sin. How many of us, we find ourselves this way, when it's, when it's time to get right with God, we kind of want to go with our head down. And, and we're, kind of, we're kind of embarrassed to approach God. And we kind of feel like what we really need to do is, instead of going to God, we just need to have three or four really good weeks to kind of whew, tip the scales and earn God's favor. This is a complete misunderstanding of it is finished. Total misunderstanding of it. The atonement's done. And I'm going to tell you, when you really get a hold of this, brothers and sisters, it's not going to make you want to run out and sin because it's finished. It gives you an entirely different appreciation for God in a way that's like, God, how could you make it so complete? You know, I'll also submit to you that when we feel more confident going to God in prayer because we've had a good week or because we're feeling pretty spiritual, we're making light of the cross. There's only one reason you and I can go to God. There's just one, and it's because of Jesus. And it is finished. It is done. It is completely finished. You learn to trust in that. It changes and revolutionizes your Christian life. And I'm going to tell you, there's a part of it that doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel fair that I could go to God boldly. The veil has been torn open wide. It doesn't feel fair that I could go to Him when I've had a bad week. When I know better and still I acted that way. It feels like it'd be more fair if I disciplined myself for a good couple of weeks and paid penance and made things right, and then it would be fair. Hey, that's the human way. 
but it's not God's way. And quite honestly, when you understand the gravity of sin, there's no good two weeks you could have that would actually make up for it. And I'll tell you, that attitude, it's really a miserable Christian existence because in, deep in your heart, you know it's never enough. You know you can never really tip the scales. You know it. You know it. It just doesn't seem fair that Christ would have to be the one that completely and totally finishes it. It feels like it'd be like, you know, 90% him plus 10% me. That feels more fair. We have got to throw our complete 100% trust on Jesus. And we come to him in the bad times, and we come to him in the good times, and we come to him in moments of failure, and we come to him in moments of victory, all because of one reason and one reason only, because he made it possible on the cross. It is finished. I don't have to add to it. I don't have to do anything. All I need to do is trust him, believe him, and follow him with all of my heart. Amen? It's finished. You know, the, the veil was torn from top to bottom. I don't know if, if I could ever, even in my own mind, grasp what was happening in that moment. God was opening the door for us to approach Him. Not the other way around. It wasn't as if we got a thousand men on the left and a thousand men on the right and they all tugged as hard as they could and finally tore open the door so we can approach God. That's not what happened. God did it. God said, rip. The door to me is open. It was God that wanted us to approach him. It was God that wanted us to be able to come to him freely because of Christ. This morning, what does your prayer life look like? I just really think that um, there's a handful of things that have been lost in the Christianity. And prayer is one of them. Like we, we've lost the awe of prayer that you can approach God. Not only can you, but that God wants you to. He made the way, paved the cost, finished what needed to be finished, tore the veil wide open because he wants us to approach him. And how often we, we throw around that word is more of a thing that often means thoughts. Like my thoughts are with you. I'm going to think about you today. And, you know, the Christian-y way to say that is I'll pray for you. Prayers. Praying. But are we really? We're really taking the time to approach the throne with a sense of boldness. Think about how different, how it's like there was a complete switch when Jesus cried, it's finished. Used to be you couldn't go in there. Only one man, the highest priest of the land, could go in once a year into the Holy of Holies. Now the veil is torn. Anybody can come, and not only do we come, but the Bible tells us in Hebrews that we come 
boldly before the throne of grace. We don't come in with a sense of fear and wonder if God's going to hear us, but a sense of boldness. I can come boldly before God because Jesus has finished it, and I stand righteous in the sight of God because Christ has done all that needs to be done in order for me to approach God. What a powerful thought. This morning, before coming to church, I stepped out in my backyard and just spent some time in prayer, and there was just such a sense of God's nearness. I felt like I could just reach out and touch Him somehow. And I, was, I had this sense of renewed wonder in my spirit this morning. The veil has been torn open wide. God's not hiding from us. He says, seek me and you will find me. When we search with all of our heart, God desires to be found. He desires to be approached. He desires to be sought. And he has done all that could possibly be done to make that available. It's finished. I have no idea what Satan was thinking when he heard those words, but I wish I did. Number three. The third declaration I see, I see in his final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I see Jesus declaring his absolute trust in the Father. And I find it fitting that this would be the very last thing that he said. Remember last week we studied this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so... If you remember that even though he had felt forsaken, even though for the first time in his life he had been cut off from his connection to the Father, and it was as if the lights had gone out and he was there all alone, he still called him my God. Do you remember that from last week? We see here, literally minutes, after he's been cut off, literally minutes after that feeling of being abandoned, him make this statement of absolute trust, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When I hear that statement and I see that statement, I also see once again the humanity of Christ. I see this complete trust with what's about to happen. It doesn't matter who you are, how long you've been saved, how great of a Christian you are. There's something a little bit scary about death for all of us. It's just, it's the unknown. That passing from this realm to the next, what does it feel like? What happens? And there's a little bit about it that's scary. The one thing that I'm fully convinced of is that in most scenarios, most, the person that's passing from this life to the next has an awareness of it. I've talked to a multitude of people who either died and came back to life through resuscitation or whatever it may be. Uh, people that were near death, I mean, right on the verge of death, and somehow pulled through. And there's this constant theme from many of them that there was an awareness they were passing. 
Sometimes they describe it as kind of out of body, like I felt like I was leaving my body. Sometimes there's something that they see on the other side. I've heard stories of people um, like very similar to the, the record of Stephen in the book of Acts. Right as they were dying, it was as if they saw Jesus and actually spoke to Jesus, and then they were gone. And I'm convinced Jesus was nearing that moment. Like, as a human being, he knew that he was dying. Yeah, he knew he was dying six hours ago, but not when he was dying. Right? Didn't know it could be two hours, could be four, could be ten. Just, I'm, I'm going to die on the cross. But here he knew it's happening now. And in that last second, we see still his absolute trust in the Father. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. For every one of us that are Christians, unless the Lord comes back and we go home in the rapture, For every one of us, we will eventually have this same moment in our lives where at the last breath, Christ will have to be our example. And there will just simply be this trust that, Lord, into your hands, I'm trusting, I'm committing, this spirit is yours, and I just trust it in your hands. This morning, I want to finish with a couple of additional applications to the events surrounding this moment. And I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would go ahead and get in place. I want to talk about the miracles that took place, the signs that took place, the wonders that took place at Christ's death. You know, we often point to His resurrection as the infallible, undeniable proof that He was the Son of God. And it's definitely that. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead just like He said He would on His own authority is proof that He is the Son of God. But I want you to note this. The centurion and those with Him, they didn't need that proof to come to the conclusion that He was the Son of God. Look at all that happened. Darkness on the land. Could you imagine a midnight darkness just coming on the land from from noon to three? The best way they could describe it was the sun ceased to give its light. That was the best human words they could come up with to say, here's what happened. The sun ceased to give its light. Man, that would have been eerie. The earth quaked. Rocks were split. A veil was torn in two, and this veil, man, it was massive. It was thick. So strong was it, I'm not convinced that you could have got a thousand guys on each side of it and actually torn it apart from the bottom to top. I mean, it was an incredibly thick, elaborate, woven, very strong curtain, veil. And it just tears from the top to the bottom. You know what it tells us? There's never been anybody else like Jesus. That's what it tells us. Any rational-minded person that truly looks at these events 
would come to the same conclusion the centurion did. He's not like us. He is sinless. He's done no wrong. He is the Son of God. And at His death, even the earth quaked and the sun did not shine. There has never been one like Jesus. This morning, you know, for the Christian, real Christianity, it's not about deciding you're going to be a good person. It's not about deciding you're going to start going to church. Real Christianity says that I find my death in someone else's death. I find my life in someone else's life. I find my purpose in someone else's purpose. All that I am is in Jesus. I find my entire meaning in Him and in Him alone. I can approach God because of Jesus. I can live confidently because of Jesus. I'm going to heaven because of Jesus. I'm forgiven because of Jesus. I want to close this morning with a question that I've asked a couple of times throughout the sermon series. When you look at all that He did, when you look at the, the life that he gave, when you look at the cost that he paid, when you look at the death that he died, does he not deserve you? Does he not deserve that you turn from your wicked ways? That you turn from your sinning and that you follow him? You know, there's one reason that we don't. There really is. There's really just one reason that we don't. It's that we don't trust him. We don't actually believe it's going to be better. We're afraid if I say no to this sin, then my boyfriend will leave me. We're afraid if I say no to this sin, then I'm not going to get promoted. We're afraid that if I'm selfless and I serve others and I treat others with love and respect, then I'm never going to climb the ladder. We're, we're afraid that if I, do, if I do it God's way, if I trust God totally and completely, it's not going to benefit me. And so we continue in our sins. I'm going to ask it again. When you look at all that he's done, does he not deserve your faithfulness? Did he not lead the way? I mean, if there was ever anybody that wondered, God, why would you tell me to do this? It was him. But he trusted the Father to the end. He believed with all of his heart that no matter how hard it was going to be temporarily, that the reward that was coming on the other side was going to be worth it. And he stayed faithful to the Father.